Faced with an uncertain future, many business owners and technology professionals don't have the time needed to invest in their business technology strategies. And as a result, they're afraid of their technology getting outdated and putting their company and customers information at risk. The digital future is already here, but with all different choices in the marketplace, it's difficult to know which one will be the best fit for you and your strategic vision. Imagine having the peace of mind that your business is backed by the right technology investments that are tailored for your specific need. Hi, I'm Brian Nichols, and I've helped countless business owners and technology professionals just like you, helping you make informed decisions about what technologies are best to invest in for your business. Voice, bandwidth, cybersecurity, business continuity, juggling all the aspects of business technology is messy. Let me help. Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash help and sign up for a free one-on-one -on -one consultation with yours truly to dig deep into where you see your company heading and how we can align your business technology towards those goals. Again, that's briannicholsshow.com forward slash help to get your simplified business technology started today. Victor Antonio, welcome to the program. Selling is all about, really, it's, we're not selling a product, you're not selling a service, you're not selling value, you're not selling whatever you think you're selling, a solution. You're selling change. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. As a sales and marketing executive in the greater telecommunications cybersecurity industry, Brian works with C-level executives to help them future-proof their company's infrastructure for an uncertain future. And in each episode, Brian takes that experience and applies it to the liberty movement. This is why we talk about being the trusted advisor. You should be able to help use that expert guidance and all the opinions that I'm sure that you have and help lead them towards not just a decision, but the right decision. Instead of focusing on simply winning arguments or being right, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and their application in the world of politics, showing you how to ask better questions, tell better stories, and ultimately change people's minds. And now, your host, Brian Nichols. Pratik Chogli here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you first and foremost for reaching out to the show um, and, and showing me what you do for work. Because I honestly, I think what you're doing needs to be spoken about so uh, fervently because right now where we are in America, obviously the rising te uh, tensions and escalation in us possibly going to war with Iran. I think your message of non-interventionism, especially being someone who came from, shall we say, the more neoconservative right, it's it's desperately needed today. So let's kind of start out here in discussing, first and foremost, who the heck are you? And then we'll kind of dig into your your personal story uh, going from a neoconservative to, shall we say, a more foreign policy realist. So with that, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm currently a researcher at Boston College. I'm writing a book about uh, American universities in the greater Middle East. Um, but previously, I've worked in a variety of foreign policy capacities. Uh, I was a magazine editor, a campaign uh, advisor. I worked at the State Department during the George W. Bush administration. And I've also helped a number of uh, foreign policy officials write their memoirs. So what kind of got you started off in your political journey? Was there anything in particular that kind of set you towards one path or the other? Yeah, I, you know, if you can believe it, I actually became interested in foreign policy when I was uh, five years old. And uh, the reason for that is uh, that's when the first Gulf War happened. And so the, the first Gulf War was really... Uh, I would argue the first time that we had a genuinely televised uh, conflict. Uh, CNN was actually showing the war as it was unfolding. Um, so my parents were watching uh, the war unfold, and I took an interest in that. And um, the, the Gulf War was really the beginning of my interest in foreign policy. And I think 
like many people who were paying attention to foreign policy in the 90s, um, we saw a string of U.S. military interventions uh, more or less work and achieve the goals that they wanted to. Um, so, you know, seeing you, the, the record of U.S. military interventions in the 90s um, and then being a teenager when 9-11 happened, um, I more or less accepted uh, many of the arguments that the neoconservatives were making that uh, many of the problems in the Middle East and elsewhere around the world were a symptom of uh, political tyranny and political dysfunction, uh, and that the American military had a role to play as a stabilizer. So <laughs> it's funny that you you start off just by talking about that because you know today we're recording here on on January seventh, and this will be airing on uh, on on Friday of this week. Um, but I was listening to Ben Shapiro when I was at the gym, and listening to Ben Shapiro discuss topically what's happening right now in Iran. It's literally the exact same argument that the neoconservatives, based on just on your, even your experience, that what they were saying back in the 90s. What is it about this neoconservative, honestly, it's an ideology, um, but what is it that's really gotten this neoconservative belief to be essentially at the forefront of American foreign policy for, dare I say, the past 70, 80 years? Well, you know, I, I have to say that I think there are elements of neoconservative insights that I think uh, remain correct. I, I think it's very hard to uh, think about and understand the threat emanating from Iran without taking seriously the nature of the Iranian regime, um, their record on that their ideology of Islamism, uh, the way they project power through terrorism and uh, weapons of mass destruction, etc. Um, and so I think there is a, a an element of truth in neoconservative insights. Now, where I uh, differ from the neoconservatives is that I think the record that we have had in deploying military force uh, since 9-11 have not achieved uh, the goals that policymakers set out to. And while there are a number of reasons why American military interventions have fallen short, uh, I don't think that the only reason they, they have not worked is because the use of force has not been applied correctly. I think that an insight that the neoconservatives have missed is that with the way our system is set up in the real world, with the way policymaking happens, uh, with the dynamics of the Middle East, I think there are just serious limitations on what uh, American military force can achieve. And I think given these realities, we have to be thinking uh, in other ways about how to protect our interests without relying um, on our military might uh, to the degree that we have. So let's kind of take that, and I want to kind of apply it now to what was your experience, right? So you served in, in the Bush White House, correct? I was at the State Department. Okay, got you. So, so under the yeah. Bush administration. So, correct, um, yeah. so what was that like? What kind of, what was, number one, your mindset when you were in the Bush um, State Department? But also, kind of, how did that curb your, your views, for better or for worse? So I was at the uh, State Department from 2008 to 2009, so the very the final year of the Bush administration, and I was working on uh, arms control and non-proliferation uh, issues. And basically, the way uh, the State Department is organized, that the arms control uh, bureau at the State Department historically tends to be the more uh, hawkish, military-oriented uh, uh, bureau within the State Department. Um, so we were at an interesting juncture uh, in the sense that for for much of the early period, especially of the Bush administration, uh, a lot of the emphasis and the arms control agenda focused on disarming Iraq. Uh, now, Iraq was disarmed as a consequence of the Iraq war, but in the course of that disarmament campaign, we just ended up uh, not only damaging American credibility to a large extent, 
uh, but also Iraq consumed a great deal of the foreign policy uh, effort and agenda. Now, you know, the interesting thing looking back is that because I was in the Bush administration and then subsequently helped uh, with different memoirs, uh, I saw how many misjudgments there were in the uh, conception of the Iraq war, the way that, that the war was implemented. And so I believed for a long time that the reason why the Iraq intervention uh, failed was largely due to the errors and misjudgments in the way the war was carried out. Now, I think that there were serious misjudgments in the way the war was carried out. Um, but as I, as I think back and reflect on not only the outcome that we had in Iraq, but also subsequent interventions that we've had, uh, particularly in Libya, which I think was actually implemented and carried out by a more able uh, set of strategists, and, and it was done in a different way. The fact that our uh, military campaign, even in Libya, had such uh, problematic consequences uh, was really the beginning of my thinking that there was something fundamentally wrong uh, with a foreign policy strategy that was so reliant on military intervention. So did that kind of lead you more towards, I mean, I don't want to say more of like an isolationist or a non-interventionist, but maybe more of a, uh, well, a foreign policy realist, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I I wouldn't call myself an isolationist because I, I think America does have a, a role to play in the world. I think that if if our foreign policy is handled in a certain way, we can be a, a stabilizer in the world. Um, I think one of the uh, insights, perhaps, that, that doesn't get enough credit is the fact that our role as a global leader in the world uh, rests to a large degree, not necessarily on our military power, but just the fact that people around the world accept the legitimacy of American power and, and accept the fact that our role in the world is fundamentally benign. Um, and, and if you look at, for example, the way globalization has unfolded with uh, free trade becoming more and more of a reality with the world being interconnected, uh, I think American, uh, uh, America's role in the world uh, does have, can be credited with that. But I think that the flip side of that is that when America uh, goes too far in the, in the interventionist direction, and I would argue particularly when military force is involved, uh, that's when the consequences of American power become more problematic. So kind of help frame for the audience what you would consider to be a more ideal situation for American foreign policy. Because obviously right now, with what we have in place, it's it's by and large really not working. We, we're spending trillions of dollars overseas in, in foreign conflicts, you know, year after year. And, and we see just a perpetual continuation of what's been pretty much the status quo over in the Middle East. And that's been pretty much chaos. And and a lot of it, I dare say, is due to the fact that, you know, yes, we were there in causing a lot of the mayhem in the first place. So what would be the ideal kind of situation in, in, in kind of your world? Well, I think the foundation of America's influence on the world is creating a nation at home that people aspire to and believe is uh, broadly legitimate and and emblematic of the kind of goals we want to pursue in the world. I think if you look at America today with our uh, our national debt, with the, the degree to which we have family and social breakdown, uh, with the nature of our uh, pop culture, um, with the fact that our politics seem uh, by any standard to be dysfunctional, it's very hard for me to believe that leaders around the world uh, look to America and see a, a model that is worth uh, aspiring to, which I think is very different from the situation that you might have had uh, in the earlier mid-90s. And so I think the, the first thing that ought to be done is to take seriously uh, the challenge of 
uh, addressing clear problems and imbalances at home uh, in the American economy and our American political system uh, and work on rectifying them. And I think that our military interventions and our foreign policy um, have have not only created uh, uh, problems around the world, I think they've also sapped our uh, will and energy and dynamism at home. Now, not, not that it's like super important, but I I genuinely am curious, what, what would you say you identify politically as? Because I know you write for the American Conservative, so I would assume that you're leaning more right, but where would you kind of self-identify? Uh, I think over the years, I've sort of more and more gone from being a neoconservative, neoconservative to more of a libertarian. Um, that's probably, you know, a good enough descriptor of where I am gotcha. today. And the reason I ask is because, I mean, I know I myself came more from the right and, and mine was growing up during Iraq war too. And, and getting to see, you know, just the, the consequences of that happening right before my eyes. Cause it, I mean, I'm from upstate New York, right near where Fort Drum is originally from. And, and to see people that you, you would see on a daily basis and people you'd know who are now going overseas and some of them not coming back, it, it kind of, it hits you that this is real. Um, and it's not just, you know, the, the video game mentality that it seems a lot of our foreign policy strategists have implemented over the past 70 years. So I guess, where would you say American foreign policy got it right in the past? And maybe where do you see we, we've gotten off track and what kind of was that that precipice that got us going in the wrong direction? Well, I think one, uh, maybe one place to begin is the the lessons that American foreign policymakers uh, drew from the outcome of the Cold War. Uh, I think the collapse of the Soviet Union was obviously an enormous uh, strategic victory for the U.S. And I think the, the big lesson that American policymakers uh, drew from that is that they felt a great deal of vindication uh, from uh, the way we conducted our foreign policy in the Cold War. But I think that one of the, one of the missteps or, or errors that happened is that although uh, it was right uh, for American foreign policymakers to think about the ingredients of why the U.S. emerged victorious in the Cold War, I think the opposite side of the coin also deserved attention, which is the question of how a, a beleaguered Russian empire that had been brutalized in World War II, um, that was founded on a very tenuous empire with restive nations that was built on a communist uh, dysfunctional economy. How did the Soviet empire that had so many weaknesses compete with the U.S.? Uh, over many decades, and at certain junctures of the Cold War, uh, looked like they were going to win. And I think that perhaps a more sort of realistic, less triumphalist uh, interpretation of the Cold War uh, might have put American foreign policy on a more realistic footing. Um, I think what American foreign policymakers have gotten right um, is the insight that values matter, that that American power and America's role in the world is not simply a matter of um, looking at balances of power and, and sort of navigate managing narrow interests. But I think it's also that our, uh, our ideals, our values, our emphasis on human rights, these are a part of our uh, appeal in the world. And I think that where I differ from many realists is that I do think American foreign policy ought to be grounded in a values orientation. But I think the big uh, mistake was overestimating what our government, what our institutions are capable of achieving. And I think that many of the weaknesses and shortcomings in our system really come to the fore, uh, in particular when we deploy military force in chaotic environments. 
Mm. And and we're actually seeing too, like kind of the the dirty behind the scenes here domestically, right? I mean, we just saw just what happened with this entire impeachment fiasco that that started off with the the, the Mueller investigations and and all the the malfeasances that were taking place behind the scenes by the FBI, but the CIA. And it's like, oh, you know, these these are the organizations that were giving us a lot of the intelligence that they were using as justification for the wars overseas. And and we're starting to see more and more frequently that the information that we've been given has been incorrect. I mean, one note look further than the, the fact what's happening to the Afghanistan papers that were released showing just how how out of source the Pentagon was, both, you know, maliciously and unintentionally, just out of pure ignorance. And it's it's kind of shocking, I think, for your average citizen to see this, but Honestly, a lot of it's not being covered. It's not being discussed as much because there seems to be a much more focused, you know, agenda in, in the corporate media. And it doesn't seem like this kind of aha moment, which I dare say would have been an aha moment, be it back under the Bush administration, um, because they were looking for, for a way to say, look at, you know, we need to be anti-war and, and Bush is a, a war criminal. That was the argument. And, you know, this now is, is coming to light and it seems like the, the anti-war left has has gone completely missing when it comes to exposing what not only took place under you know the the Bush administration but also what continued through the Obama administration and you know his his thousands and thousands of drones overseas. Yeah, it's interesting. It's become kind of a almost a cliche now for people in the American establishment to lament uh, the extent to which Americans have lost confidence in their institutions, and I've I've always found that a little bit perplexing because I would argue actually that the American people have a uh, inordinate degree of faith in our institutions. Um, you can kind of see that in our pop culture, for example, where everyone sort of lampoons Hollywood and whatever for being these anti-American leftists. But, I, you know, I would argue that when you look at the depiction or the way that uh, American CIA or FBI officers or even military people are portrayed in the media, they're uh, portrayed as people who are efficient, competent, they get the job done, they go hunt bad guys around the world. Um, I mean, if, if you actually look at the way our institutions work, even when they're working well, uh, they're riddled with bureaucratic leaks and inefficiencies and cover-ups and you know, all in all incompetence. And I think that a, a degree of healthy skepticism about uh, the inherent shortcomings and limitations about what our institutions can produce uh, might be the first step in in rectifying or correcting some of the imbalances in our uh, foreign policy making. So speaking of uh, of some misinformation out there, it seems with all the, the stuff that's going on in Iran, actually here we are, you know, doing our recording right now, it looks like there might be a missile strike uh, from Iran uh, to, I forget the base, but it's a base in Iraq where U.S. troops are, are stationed right now. Um, so Right now, we could literally have history unfolding. Who knows? Uh, but let's kind of talk about, as we transition towards uh, this topic here, Iran. Uh, how did we get here? And, you know, with it seems like World War Three knocking on our door. It's one question I know a lot of people are, are saying, like, where did this all begin? Number one. And number two. Why are why are we over there in the first place? Why are we worrying about um, you know, this this general that was just killed? Why why is this such a big issue when you know, we're a world apart? Can you kind of set the, the stage for this? Yeah, well, uh, Brian, I'd be curious if you agree. Um, my own view is that as kind of unbelievable as it sounds, I don't think the U.S. has ever actually had a genuine Iran policy, which is to say that um, since the 79 revolution, we've kind of gone from one crisis to the next without actually a clear understanding of what we uh, want out of our Iran policy. 
Now, I think part mm-hmm. of that is that American uh, power and the American agenda has been consumed by other crises uh, in the Middle East. And so even though Americans uh, have recognized that Iran is a serious player, it's kind of been overshadowed by other uh, issues. Um, I think Iraq is the obvious example of where from uh, the first Gulf War uh, through the current war in Iraq, we've been so consumed with the threat uh, posed by Iraq that Iran has been kind of a sideshow. Um, and I think that we've never quite, uh, uh, as a country, decided on what we want out of Iran. Do we want to accommodate Iranian power, uh, keep it at bay and, and deal with other issues? Um, do we want regime change in Iran? Do we simply want to uh, focus on the nuclear issue and prevent them from going nuclear? And so even today, I actually do not know, and I, I'm skeptical that American policymakers even have a clear understanding of what we want uh, for Iran or what we want to happen in Iran. And so I think a lot of where we are now is a symptom of managing crisis after crisis without actually having a clear Iran policy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I dare say a lot of the crises that we're facing are, are you know, of our own our own doing, honestly. I mean, uh, and you mentioned the policies that we really haven't had, and that, that's a very, actually, a good point. I think it's Actually, maybe a, thankfully, a, a result of our, our democratic system where, you know, we, we will vote one party out and then put another party out to, that kind of bends to the will of the people. But I don't know. I see more recently the, the will of the people for anti-war has been ignored more and more so by the establishment elite, um, or just, you know, the, the military industrial complex who's working behind the scenes. But I mean, it's obvious that we've had people who have been, you know, raising the alarm that this is going to be a problem. Wesley Clark back in 99, he said, quote, we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq, then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and it, uh, finishing off Iran. Did he get the timeline wrong? Well, yeah, but did he get the, most of the countries right? Uh, it's, it's it's pretty scary because, you know, that that was said in 1999, yet we're seeing here we are in 2020. And, you know, we're we're almost to the point where that is becoming reality. I mean, he had John McCain, bomb, 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 Iran. And that was he had no qualms of saying that on, on you know, a hot mic. And he seemed to be celebrating it. So, I mean, it used to be that the right was the party of war and the left was the party of anti-war. And now it seems that. It's more of the establishment in both parties are, are fans of war. And thankfully, you have voices both on the left and the right. I'd say, you know, the left of, of a Tulsi Gabbard, for example, and then on the right, those of a Justin Amash or a Thomas Massey who are, who are fervently, you know, maybe not necessarily anti-war, but at the very least non-intervention. And, you know, it, it seems now we're at a point where the original duopoly that was out there of this, you know, two-party system that's going to be c- controlling us forever is now more of a, an, a pro-war you know, duopoly that's, that's from both the establishment of the left and the right. And it seems like the more, you know, I'd say common sense, logical thinking folk in, in the rest of the parties, they're kind of sitting there on our hands. Like, what do we do? Yeah, there's no question that we have a bipartisan foreign policy establishment and a foreign policy elite that is significantly more hawkish uh, than where American public opinion is. Um, no, I think the question is why, how did we get there? And I think a lot of the answer has to do with the fact that uh, those who are more inclined toward interventionism have simply done a, a better job of creating institutions and uh, uh, organizing in ways that give them outsized influence in the political debate. Um, I'm frankly skeptical that we're, uh, or uh, let me put it a different way, I think that probably we're going to continue to see a status quo. Uh, where we have a bipartisan foreign policy elite, I think they will continue to have an outsized uh, role and influence. And I think that we will continue to see in the next couple of years 
a mismatch of sorts between the kind of foreign policy that the American people want and the kind of foreign policy that we in fact get uh, simply due to the entrenched uh, foreign policy elite that we have in both parties. It's wild, right? I mean, you watch on the debate stage, you had Donald John Trump on stage in South Carolina, which is, you know, a fervent pro-Bush state, standing next to Jeb Bush, George Bush's brother, and basically turning to him during the debate and saying, your brother lied and got us into the Iraq war, and it was an absolute disaster. And, like, he called him out on stage. And that was, you know, the president of the United States, who now is is in the, the role of being able to actually dictate a, a rational foreign policy, yet he seems even, he's kind of, you know, reneged on what he said he was going to do. So here we are, right, January 7th as we're recording 2020, and it sounds like things are escalating, in fact, over in Iran. So I want to ask you, just based on where we are right now, what kind of seems to be, let, let's let's break this into two parts. One, what do you see as being the, I guess, the end solution or end the end game, if you will, of what happens with the Iran situation? Uh, or... And then number two, what do you think we should do right now based on we were currently stand with Iran with them seemingly launching um, you know, missiles to the United States bases there in Iraq? Well, I, I think both the U.S. and Iran recognize at the end of the day that a all-out confrontation or conflict um, is not in their interest. Now, that's not a guarantee that that kind of situation will not, in fact, happen. I think we've, we have ample historical precedent uh, to show that these kind of crises can flare up beyond uh, in ways that no one wants. Um, but that said, my my hunch here is probably that uh, things will escalate, but that the escalation will probably remain contained uh, in Iraq, and that we'll see a, a proxy war of sorts developing uh, in Iraq. Um, one of the things that I think is remarkable in the way the, the post-war in Iraq is carried out is that by any conventional uh, measure of power, um, the, the U.S. is a stronger party. At, at, if you look at our troop levels in Iraq, uh, the amount of money we're putting into the campaign, uh, the coherence of our national security institutions, our alliances around the world. And yet, when you look at uh, how much the Iranians have achieved, it's, it's remarkable that they, uh, you know, in, in a variety of ways, from asymmetric warfare to the way they've navigated the Iraqi political system, they basically turned this uh, war into an opportunity to, to uh, gain influence over Iraq um, that, that I think well exceeds what you would predict simply from uh, Iran's power alone. Uh, so my, my guess here is that what Iran probably wants out of this conflict is to uh, expand their influence and their hold over the situation in Iraq. And judging by the recent uh, parliamentary vote in Iraq, it looks like they may get their way. So what do you see going into the 2020 election as being the, the winning argument, be it from President Trump or the eventual Democratic nominee, in terms of uh, trying to win the, the hearts and souls of the American people, especially in regards to the foreign policy going forward? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with how uh, the Democratic, uh, Democratic candidates, or I suppose the, the eventual Democratic nominee, uh, chooses to engage uh, Trump on foreign policy. I think that the argument that Trump has to bring to the table is that on the one hand, um, we continue to have problems in the world. Um, but at the same time, it has to be conceded that as uh, ham-handed as, as Trump has been in certain respects, I think that the Trump administration deserves credit in the sense that they have managed to avoid 
the kind of blunders that we've seen from the last few administrations. We've had nothing, uh, no misguided or botched interventions of the sort that we had in Libya under Obama uh, or, or Iraq under Bush. And so I think that the Trump administration has shown a degree of restraint. Uh, at the same time, I think, as you pointed out, the Trump administration has not lived up to the promises that Trump campaigned on, uh, which is a, a more fundamental reassessment of American foreign policy. Um, and so I think this leaves the eventual Democratic nominee with a lot of different options. Uh, one scenario might be that they don't engage on foreign policy at all and try to focus the discussion on domestic policy. But I think that the Democratic nominee could also critique uh, Trump from both sides. Either they could argue that uh, America has not been robust enough, that we've allowed our alliances to fray, that America has not shown the kind of leadership that we want. Or I think the Democratic nominee could make uh, the opposite argument, that Trump has continued the cycle of American overreach, uh, that we continue to intervene in places where we don't have an exit strategy. And I think any of these scenarios could work, um, but I think we, we don't know yet which tact uh, the Democratic nominee will take. Well, I guess uh, people need to, to stay up to date in learning about what's going to be happening in, as we go into 2020, especially when it comes to foreign policy. So where can folks go ahead and and follow you and uh, keep up to, uh, to date with all the articles you're writing over at the American Conservative? Um, well, you can. Uh, I have a website, pratikchogli.com, uh, or you can find me on Twitter, uh, where I'm posting fairly frequently. Thank you so much for, for joining the show. We're looking forward to having you on again in the future. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe. Want to help us reach more people? Give the show a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Find us at briannicholsshow.com and download the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on social media at bnicholsliberty and consider donating to the show at briannicholsshow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Laura Stanley, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. Trust the experts. We're all in this together. If it saves one life. Raise your hand if you heard any of those tiresome phrases over the past year and a half. I know my hand is currently raised. Millions of people across dozens of industries were labeled unessential and forced to lock down with livelihoods and futures crushed in an instant. And as government has continued to expand its power and leverage fear to turn neighbor against neighbor, a group of filmmakers have taken a stand and are determined to help set the record straight on the importance of following the actual science of the pandemic. Follow the Science on Lockdowns and Liberty from the Sound Mind Creative Group is a brand new docu-series highlighting the stories of those negatively impacted over the past year and a half by ineffective government policies enacted in the name of following the science. With noted experts like Nick Hudson from Panda, the Pandemic Data and Analytics Organization, healthcare policy advisors like Scott Atlas, and telling the stories of business owners, families, and just your average everyday person harmed by these government mandates, follow the Science on Lockdowns and Liberty is giving us a chance to make sure the true stories of the pandemic are told. So please help us at The Brian Nichols Show in supporting the Sound Mind Creative Group. With noted figures in the Liberty Movement like Dr. Tom Woods donating thousands of their own dollars to this project, you know just how important this project is. So head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash follow the science to donate and catch their brand new trailer to the docuseries one more time. That's briannicholsshow.com forward slash follow the science.